0: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is created, the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is the Ash London Podcast. I am, you guessed it, Ash London. Reformed radio host, new mum and human being on a quest to live my best life when it feels like the world around me is imploding. Sound familiar? Every Tuesday, we do a bit of mum chat. Every Thursday, I do my favourite thing on the planet and I interview a guest. From celebrities who have entertained us over the craziness of the last two years to everyday people with inspiring stories. This is the Ash London Podcast. Today's episode carries a trigger warning. We will be discussing domestic abuse and family violence. A reminder that if you need help, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. 24 hours a day. Tarang Chavla is an anti-violence advocate whose sister Nikita died at the hands of her husband in 2015. He hosts a brand new podcast called There's No Place Like Home. It's a 10-part series revealing what's really happening behind closed doors for victims of domestic and family violence. According to the latest data, one Australian woman will be killed by a former or current partner each week. I, for one, I think I'm guilty of having a lot of misconceptions about domestic violence, what it looks like, how it starts, the kind of people that are usually perpetrators. The reality is that the truth is a lot more insidious. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Taring to work through the trauma, anger and grief after his little sister's life was taken. But the work he's done since is beyond impressive. And I am so honoured to have Taring on today's episode.
1: No, thank you for having me on. It's really great to chat to you, Ash.
0: Um, and congratulations on the podcast. I just listened to episode one. Beautifully done. It's full on but important. How long have you been kind of tapping away at this? When did this kind of start? Because oh, I know that it takes a while to get these things off the, off the ground.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been... Uh, a real labor of love for for many people myself included i've worked on it for probably the last uh, six or so months wow. uh, in in quite an intense capacity like you know from um, helping to you know identify the victim survivors that we should speak to on the podcast to um, what are the sorts of uh, care requirements we need to take mm. when dealing with people who have lived experience of horrific kinds of trauma um, to the actual recording process, you know, interviewing experts, practitioners, frontline workers, that kind of thing. So it's been a real um, labor of love from my perspective and from everyone involved, the whole Future Women team that um, they've put this together as well as um, the team at ComBank who are supporting the podcast as well have been fantastic. You know, a lot of feedback yeah. from them in terms of um, the work that they're doing, in terms of supporting um, women primarily who are living with financial abuse um, mm. and supporting them to, to get a fresh start in life after they do leave an abusive relationship. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it feels like a lot longer than six months. Six months yeah. doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're so invested in something and you're so like uh, you care so deeply yeah. about a, a topic, um, yeah, it sort of becomes all consuming in a way. Of course.
0: And there's so much to unpack, even from what you just said, there's so much I want to get into. I want to talk about yeah. you know, the toll it takes on you being involved in all of that day in, day out, your role as a, as a male anti-violence um, advocate. Um, but I think for everyone listening, the, the best place to start is what happened to you and your family a couple of years ago. The reason you're involved in this work it started with something incredibly tragic and for most people I think something like that happens and you suppress it or you you know you do what you can to deal with it but instead you have immersed yourself in hopes of a world of this never happening to another family so tell everyone listening about what happened.
1: So Ash my um my little sister in 2015, seven years ago now, was murdered by her partner after she told him that she wanted to end the relationship and break up with him. And over the weekend, I was thinking about this conversation with you and I was thinking about that last conversation that I had with my sister Nikki. And we had these plans for we plans for Sunday lunch and I texted her on the Thursday night um, leading up to the weekend. I was like, hey, are you going to be there? And she wrote back, OMG, why, why wouldn't I be? I can't wait. Um, but Nikki never made it to lunch and she didn't make it to any other lunches because the following morning, I, I remember um, the knock on the door at 6am. Um, and it's, I mean, in any world, it's sort of unusual to have people knocking on your door that early, but yeah. it's like firm knock on the door, like four knocks. And then these two uniformed police officers in their blue uniforms and they were like, do you know Nikita Chawla? And our family was like, yeah, well, what happened was she in a car accident or is she okay and they were like i think you need to sit down for this and that immediately kind of sends you into this thing of like worst case scenario but for us the worst case scenario was even worse than we'd even imagined right was that um her partner had killed her and you know whenever i think about this i think about like Um, the fact that Nikki was killed what really shocks me or jolts me back to a sense of reality and why I started sort of doing the advocacy and campaign work that I do is that what happened to Nikki wasn't in isolation like what happened to Nikki happens far too often you know like it's really easy for us you know Ash to sit here and talk about statistics like one in three women will experience some form of emotional abuse from the age of 15 or one in four will experience some form of physical um, assault or violence in some capacity it's really easy to talk about that as though these things are just numbers yeah. and and nameless faceless entities but these are real human beings and these are families and these are people that it happens to so from you know for, for me it was so crucial and important having a voice having an education uh, and also seeing the sort of injustice that was playing out, right? Seeing the way that Nikki was treated in the media, uh, seeing the kinds of things that people said to me and my family around victim blaming. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember someone saying to me because Nikki had ended the relationship or at least she was trying to. And I remember someone saying, well, what does she think would happen? I mean, didn't, didn't she get what she deserves? And I remember this thinking like, well, isn't that messed up? Yeah. Like, what did she think would happen? She should be able to think that she can leave the relationship as and when she chooses, yeah. you know. And, and that's do so more safely. Okay. Yeah, and do so safely, right? Absolutely. And that, you know, that really um, got to me. And even journalists, like well-educated, well-intentioned journalists would ask things quite pointedly like, well, why, you know, why didn't she leave? Mm-hmm. Um, as though we could, like, give her, give give them, sorry, an appropriate response. And it was really strange in that moment because it was like, well, she was trying to.
0: Yeah.
1: She was and literally trying to leave.
0: And it's so, it's something that should be so simple, but even from just listening to the, the first episode of this podcast, I realise is actually so complex. Mm. Did you as a male, as a, you know, as a, a brother, as a lawyer, as a human being, did you find that it wasn't until it happened to you that you started examining your own misconceptions, strange beliefs around this sort of thing? Because it, it really is, as you said, mm. it's one of those things you can't imagine what yeah. that would feel like until you're in the midst yeah. of it. But I think as human beings, we dissociate from things like that, that are hard yeah. to think about. And we tell ourselves stories in our minds. Yeah about the kinds of people it happens to and all of that. Were you confronted with some of your own, you know, shitty beliefs?
1: Yeah, I, I, in a way. But I grew up, um, I'm, I'm very lucky, particularly as like a man of South Asian origin, that I grew up in a pretty gender equal household. Mum mm. and, I, I mean, my, so my dad probably wouldn't be able to describe and articulate feminism from like a dictionary definition, but he lives it in his yeah. day-to-day practice, like the shared labour between mum and dad. Um, they're both you know shared the breadwinning kind of um, responsibilities. Um, Dad at, at certain points took time away from work to care for my younger sister and I. you know oh. when Mum would go on work trips, he would take over like in, in responsibility there, and generally like modeling the kind of behavior that I think we want to see in terms of respectful relationships. So I grew up in a household like that. But I always had as well this kind of fascination with gender and actually did a degree in gender studies at university alongside law. And so for me, like, I always had this fascination. It wasn't so much with, like, this idea of, of uh, you know, around gender-based violence, but more about my own kind of place in the world, right, mm. and figuring out that kind of thing. So that, that kind of examination of male entitlements, privileges, all that kind of thing kind of started a little bit earlier with me, definitely prior to my sister's murder. But what that was was a catalyst to go, wow, things in society are pretty cooked. Like yeah. they are, they're at a point where um, they're not where they need to be, and um, it, it definitely spurred a sort of a further reckoning for me about examining my own self and, and things like that. But it also, what it did was, um, it created a drive to do more. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, so like I had those kinds of the belief systems before and the the belief system that i need to speak up was born out of the kind of my sense of reality which is what we talked about before that women should be allowed to leave safely they should you know women have fundamental human rights um or at least they should have those Mm. fundamental human rights and so for for me it came from that that i believe in this but i'm living in a society where we're not seeing this Mm. so what can i do to to say something about it so for me it came from that it really came from like you know, now there's something to rest my hat on to be like, wow, this has hit too close to home. Yeah. Um, And one of the sad things I suppose in reflecting on that is that a lot of men, and I put myself in this category, that I wouldn't have spoken out to the degree that I do um, if not for my sister being murdered in a very horrific and very public way. That said, change starts at home. You know, change starts with the really small behaviour. So for the men that are listening you know, I would say that, you know, you don't need to wait for a tragedy to strike. You don't need to um, wait for something really horrible to happen or even put it in those terms. There are little fundamental small changes that we can make day to day and I think they add up to more. I think Mm -hmm. those things add up to far more than anything that I'll do in my lifetime.
0: Yeah, and I think we do see that echoed so easily in society, even things like, I don't want to get political, but even things like Scott Morrison having to, kind of centre it around him as a father before he's able to kind of have any empathy for a situation. I think it doesn't help when it isn't modelled properly from the from the places that it should be modelled. But I think um, from all accounts it sounds like Nikki was an incredible woman, strong woman, an independent woman, a sassy woman, a well-educated woman, a legend. And I think, you know, you don't expect this to happen – to your sister, you don't expect it to no. happen to someone so close to home. But I think maybe there are some misconceptions around the type of women that um, domestic abuse and violence can happen to and they are so ill-founded.
1: Yeah, no, Nikki was a superstar. She was like, you know, I, I often reflect on the, the time that we shared. She lived for 23 years and I just think the amount of love that she poured into the world and her relationships and the people around her. You know, some people aren't able to, you know, aren't so, don't receive so much love from someone close to them in a whole lifetime. And yet she was so generous of, of spirit and, and kindness. Um, and not in that kind of like new age, be kind yeah. Instagram movement, but genuinely just a kind and generous hearted person. Um, she, growing up, she was obsessed with like art and culture and she was a, a dancer. Um, classically trained in Indian, um, South Indian Mohiniyattam dancing. And she was um, also a choreographer who kind of found a way to combine um, contemporary Bollywood with like hip hop funk and then like classical training. And so she had this kind of real gift about her. Um, and, and what saddens me more than anything, really, you know, like we often talk about victims, who, you know, particularly women who lose their lives um, to men's violence as being... You know just the cause of their death you know she's often described as a murder victim but that's yeah. just the that's just the way that she, her life was taken from her right that's the way that she died but her life is really something else it's about her creativity her spirit her generosity and i think that one of the reasons that i was drawn to this podcast in particular and hosting there's no place like home because jamila rizvi um of future women um approached me and she was like hey would you be interested in this and i you know and i said i need to give it some thought because there's this there's this thing around the whole true crime movement of sensationalizing the way that women in particular are treated and yeah. for me it was like we need to do right by them we need to treat them with compassion and dignity respect and support them to uh to speak in their own words empower them so that they can speak from first person perspective mm. and that's what we've done in this podcast and so for me like that was really important. And like that, that sort of was spurred by my belief in who Nikki was as a person, that she was this creative, independent, driven person. Um, but then also what it tells me and what I, what I hope listeners take from this is that it speaks to the epidemic nature of the issue, that it's not just something happening kind of somewhere in another suburb that you know we don't know about or people that we wouldn't necessarily associate with. Violence exists on a continuum you know, and there's there's a spectrum of behaviour. And so what happened to Nikki might be the most extreme end, but it starts with really small stuff. It starts with disrespect and inequality and those kinds of, kinds of things. So we really have to address it at this level where it's sort of um, what can we do as human beings and what can men do as human beings to embody kind of equality and respect and listening to women and, and it, admitting that along the way, we're going to falter we're going to have mm. misunderstandings we might say something that inadvertently offends someone or hurts someone's feelings particularly women um, but we're navigating this space you mm. know particularly men beyond a certain age we didn't grow up with respect for relationships at school we didn't grow yeah. up with a lot of that stuff that now people are talking about you know they're talking about consent education in schools and actually implementing that now we didn't have that in sexual education. It no. was like, here, here's a banana. That's how you put a condom on. So stupid. You know? It was like, and it was like, oh great. Like, you know. penises don't look anything kind of...
0: like bananas, by the way. <laughs> Pardon. And penises don't look anything like bananas. Yeah. That was the biggest yeah. shock for me yeah. when I saw one. I was, what is yeah, it? yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like well, that's very, it's very curved um,
0: <laughs> and yellow think, and pointy on the yeah. end.
1: What? I just think, like, we're, we're making strides as a, as a society and as a culture. Mm. Uh, and I think it's so important that we continue that. I think it's so important that we continue that education. And There's No Place Like Home, this podcast, is one of those resources. You mm. know, it's one of those things that people can listen to and learn and understand that victim survivors don't look a particular way. They yeah. don't have a certain job. Uh, they don't come from a certain socioeconomic group. Same way that perpetrators of violence can come from all walks of society. You know, we're seeing... You know, it's quite tragic now seeing the way that this is unfolding that like, um, you know, the alleged actions of Andrew O'Keefe, for example, you know, a, a kind of celebrated figure in the Australian media who is is shown to have, you know, a problem and has been in and out of court and, you know, all of this stuff, you know, about his alleged actions there. So there's all of this stuff that kind of we need to reflect on and examine as a society about who are the people that are um, that are suffering from this and who are the people that do it as well.
0: I've been in that situation where you get completely bad, unexpected news about someone you love. And I know that it's, you know, it it takes your breath away. And it comes in waves and waves over coming weeks and months where you, you remember the reality of what's happened and you feel kind of like you can't do anything. Mm. How long did it take you to get from that to, well, what am I going to do to make sure this doesn't happen to other people? Like, going from that grief and the anger, the hurt, I kind of imagine the emotions you were feeling, mm. but to then put that into action, knowing that in many ways you're going to have to talk about your trauma and relive it over and over was, again through this work. Yeah.
1: It was uh, the benefit of hindsight, I suppose, Ash, it was far too soon. Mm. Like it was, it was way too quickly to be healthy or sustainable. For me, I remember Nikki was murdered on Friday, the 9th of January, 2015. And, Uh, mid-February, ABC's Q&A did a special on domestic and family violence. And I remember watching it, and there was someone shown on the TV show who talked about, it was a man, and he talked about being involved in an incident of domestic violence. And he was like, I was involved in, in this incident. And as it was sort of revealed throughout the program, he had like bashed his former partner. She was like hospitalized several times, had to have like reconstructive surgery. He spent jail time and it was really like horrible incident of domestic violence. And he talked about it like he was like an abstract party like the way you talk about like a car accident or something that happened through no one's fault he walked
0: past and called the cops when he realized what was happening or something
1: yeah because i would like i was involved in something this afternoon i had to do exactly what you just said right something like that but it wasn't like that he was talking about it in a strange way like um almost like out of body and i was like that made me feel really uncomfortable that made me feel like dude you kind of like you weren't involved in that. You did that. Like the reason that she had to go to hospital and get reconstructive surgery is because of your actions. And so I remember like writing an article about it and then I think one like local newspaper published it and then I got this response from it that people were kind of like spurred on by someone speaking out about it and someone who had um, been affected in a way where they weren't the primary victim but were related Mm. to the, the immediate victim, you know? And so... I, I just um was sort of emboldened or encouraged by that. And I was like, I'm going to do more. And I didn't have a plan. I didn't know like anything. I was still in the midst of grief, still making sense of it. The court process was ongoing at that time. Um, and it had been less than a month since the funeral, you know, because wow. we had to wait for the autopsy and all that stuff. So it was like really sudden. And then one thing sort of led to another, to another, to another. And it was just like, um, every time I spoke out, it was met with sort of... Um, some positive feedback and then other times like criticism or resistance, you know, backlash around like not all men are violent stuff like that. Um, and that was really eye-opening for me because it was like, but if you're not violent, we're not talking about you.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, literally, like to me it just made what sense. What are you getting right? so
0: defensive about?
1: Yeah. I'll never understand so, it. Yeah. And so it was sort of like um, for me it was like I saw that, hey, I'm a man, I can kind of meet them where they're at and I can actually have an honest conversation about that you know, um, that goes beyond that kind of thing of like mental health for men. That actually goes to like, well, you know, guys, some of the stuff that we do is going to impact adversely on women, you know. I'm not immune from that. I'm going to do stuff that's going to like upset women or affect them. We're all going to do that, right? So how do we do less of that? How do we be better? take
0: ownership of it as opposed to I was involved
1: with. Exactly. So that was like, that was the moment. Like I remember watching that. Ash and feeling so deeply uncomfortable and being like, yeah, I've got to, i got to speak up about this. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was strange. I didn't have like a I didn't have like a I'm gonna retreat into a shell uh, and just disappear. Mm. Um, I think when that when I saw that, I was like, whoa, this is a problem. And I've got a voice, I'm gonna try using it. Um, and that's what sort of spurred it. And here we are, like years later, doing a 10 part series with victim survivors about their experience and what we need to do collectively to help address this problem because it's only gotten worse during the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. sadly, if we don't have the kind of leadership that we need to see and we don't do the things as individuals that we can do, we're not going to see a reduction in those stats. And then there's going to be more families. There's going to be more people like Nikki, like Hannah Clark, like Tara Brown, like others who Mm -hmm. um, have their lives taken from them.
0: Yeah. No, I consider myself pretty, pretty well educated. I read a lot Um, you know, I thought when it came to issues of domestic abuse and violence, I was kind of, you know, on top of things. And it took just listening to the first episode of this podcast for me to really examine some of my own misunderstandings, assumptions around abuse and violence. And I think it's important for us to maybe touch on a couple of those now because I think a lot of people listening will probably have the same, you know, um, attitudes as I did. I think the big thing for me um one of the, one of the big takeaways for me was this idea and and Laura is the first person um that you the first victim survivor that you chat to in this series is this idea that you know when she met um her abuser, he was a good guy, he seemed like a really great guy, and it is the subtlety of it, right, and it starts off with this yep. love bombing, this you know like all consuming filling you with all the good hormones, you lovey-dovey, yeah. and then it's a really subtle um, progression, you know. Because I think we assume, well, you know, if if this person was bashed by a partner, well, obviously when she met him, she should have known that he had violent tendencies, but that's yeah. not necessarily the truth, right?
1: Yeah. No, not at all. And Laura's Laura's experience and her stories, you know, are just we're having this conversation now and in my mind, just playing over the conversations that Laura and I had. And Laura's not a real name. I should say that, you know, um, her name has been changed to protect her identity and privacy. That's happened with some of the victim survivors. Others are in a position where um, their identities are public Mm -hmm. and they do, or they have spoken a little bit previously about sort of their lived experiences. So um, they're comfortable and safe to be able to use their, their real names. Laura regrettably isn't. You know, and that's sort of that's like one of the things about the lasting impact of abuse that if she speaks about what happened to her, she can't do so in her own name and in her own identity because that puts her at further risk. Um, but to address your question, Ash, I mean, abusers don't come with like a tattoo across their forehead just saying like who they are or what they're capable of, right? So uh, it, it and it happens slowly. You know, there's there's a, an issue that's sort of been dominating news headlines over the last um, couple of years since the tragic death um, or, or murder, I should say, of um, Hannah Clark and her three children mm. around coercive control. Mm. And that's something that's touched on throughout the series, you know, and we don't, um, we've taken a very like journalistic perspective of not saying that we should criminalise it or we shouldn't criminalise it, but really giving voice to people, A, who've lived it, and be who are most affected by it, you know. Um, so we, we've sort of seen how, um, in Laura's case, all of these sorts of subtle behaviours around controlling and diminishing her sense of self eventually escalated. You know, in a way where, and and when people listen to this, what I think will shock them the most is that it took other people to piece together the puzzle for Laura mm. that you are you're actually surviving quite dangerous abuse and this man could kill you Mm. you know and and that's the thing right that it often and this is our responsibility as people to be uh knowledgeable of the warning signs and that's one of the things that we touch on in that first episode is around what are the signs of escalating abuse you know what are the things that are non-physical that put you at risk like inability to access financial resources because your partner's controlling them limiting who you can see and when so this kind of kind of controlling coercive behavior that's designed to take away power from you to, to have control over you right and so that kind of stuff you can't see it no. right you can't you can't like it's not going to bruise you it's not going to put a scar on you but it's there and it can take away from a victim survivor's agency and sense of self and their self-esteem. And that slowly erodes them to the point where like, particularly after that love bombing behavior, which is, um, you know, like over the top affection, like quite early on, like, you know, you, you'll, we'll always hear about it, right. Someone will say they've met someone new and it's going well, but then they'll start saying stuff like, Oh, he, you know, he bought me a trip. Like we can't go, we can't, most of us yeah. can't go overseas now, but I was like, you know, once upon a time, it's like, oh, he bought me a trip to Bali or whatever. And it's like, you've been dating three weeks. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah, but we're going away for a week, you know. And, like, and then you find out that it's, like, the honeymoon villa or whatever. And it's like, this is, like, you know, th- you know it mm-hmm. sounds great. It sounds amazing. Like, I'd love someone to buy me a trip to, to wherever. But it's like, um, but at the same time, it's like, this is too much too soon. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that thing where, like, sometimes deep down we know, but we, we want to believe in a good thing. You know, sometimes oh. deep down we know we're like, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. And in that respect, it's so important for us, you know, women, men, non-binary people, everyone to trust our gut a bit, you know, particularly in the early stages of a relationship, um, you know, around love bombing. So Laura regrettably, you know, suffered from a lot of, you know, a lot of non-physical abuse and a lot of psychological, emotional, um, financial abuse early on and risked homelessness. You know, at one point, um... At one point, you know, she had to, she tried to escape and it, it was, you know, so difficult for her. Um, and she still lives with, you know, s- symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. She still lives with um, security cameras around her home, you know, and we touch on all of this stuff. She speaks so openly and candidly and from the heart about what she's experienced, you know, and it's really, it's one thing for me to tell you this, but it's, I think it's another for people to really go and listen to her yeah. speak, you know in her, you know, in her own voice, which unfortunately we had to, you know, again, to protect her, we had to change the, the sound of her voice, yeah. you know? So it's really like, she's living kind of like, yeah, she's alive, but at what cost yeah. almost, you know, that um, like if she speaks about scary stuff that happened to her, she can't speak as herself.
0: And so much of this was compounded by the fact that uh, they worked together and pe- because she wasn't rocking up to work with bruises and scratches, no yeah. one believed her. And yeah. people turned against her. He was worried about his reputation, so did everything he could to kind of um, turn everybody against her. And for me, the big kind of kick in the gut was that it wasn't until she, I don't know if it was one respect or she called a helpline to get some help, and they said to her, you know, he will kill you.
1: Mm. Yeah, And I think as a woman
0: in that situation, you never believe that it's going to escalate to that. So to hear someone who knows what they're talking about say, all the signs are pointing to you dying because of this guy. I mean, I can't imagine how that would feel.
1: Oh, I, I mean, I can't imagine either, right? Because I've thankfully never been in that position, but it's sort of all of what Laura and I talked about just made my memories and you know of my sister Nikki is so much stronger in my mind that like there's this guy that she's with Laura's with and he they're working together he's got he's got control over not only you know how much she gets paid but whether or not she has a job to go to right he's literally controlling her um, her ticket to freedom in a way and yeah. he's got so much power over her and he's worried about his reputation right he's worried about like you know facebook comments and stuff like that he's worried about looking bad and um she's genuinely fearful right for her life but she doesn't quite know it until someone an expert you know from a helpline pieces together the puzzle and points out to her that yeah he he will kill you you know and for my sister she tried to get help on a couple of occasions prior to her life being taken from her but i think i I'm hopeful that this is sort of like a sign that things are changing, a sign that the the system itself is improving. And in that respect, like funding is so important because you need people to be, you need services so to be properly funded so they can have the right people doing the right work to keep women, children and men and others safe. But it's also like, you know, it also filled me with sadness because it was like Laura's life could have gone a completely different way. We could have been talking about Laura in a different way, you Mm. know, where she didn't have her voice to be able to speak, Mm. you know. And so um, it's this kind of sense of sadness but optimism and hope that hopefully as a society we can move towards doing what we need to do so that this doesn't happen to far too many women and children.
0: Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about is the idea that, Um, over and over again, we see the way that the media are portraying this, the language that they're using. Even the fact that you mentioned, you know, journalists kind of on you when it first happened. And you said, you know, a lot of them had good intentions, but I'm willing to bet that a lot of them had really bad intentions. I'm not a journalist, but I am a consumer of media and I am someone that, you know, avidly reads the news. So do you think there's anything that, as consumers of media, we can do to better protect the dignity and the commentary around victims and victim survivors
1: yeah don't don't buy it don't engage with media that is um shitty mm. you know like and that's the thing right that's the really difficult thing because the we we don't we have to be we have to be honest ash about like media ownership and the way it's so like um centralized and and Mm. so it's sort of really difficult as consumers to be able to um to have any power right but what we can do and what too few of us do is actively take to social media to call this bullshit out you know when we see like some of the horrible headlines that we've seen i won't repeat them because they're all largely disrespectful but we see them we know straight away they're like hang on this isn't right you know and so i think there's there's um there's a responsibility that we all have that we can take, which is to sort of refuse to engage in it. So rather than giving them the clicks and advertising bait that they need, you know, to sustain themselves, because those sorts of articles draw more viewers because it it triggers our, it triggers our human response to care about other people. Mm. You know, we, we're like hardwired to care about other people. You know, most of us are fundamentally good. And so we care about other people. We want them to do well. We want them to succeed. And so these sorts of articles rely on fear and shame and guilt and kind of all these baser instincts to get us to like click more and to be more engaged in them. And one of the things that I think we can do is to identify that and then not engage with it, you know, to, and, and to call it out and to be like, Hey, we expect better of you, mm. you know, as a, as a media organization, we expect better that you will report ethically, responsibly, respectfully um, because the guidelines exist, that the media organisations know them, it's not so it's not so accidental. I think that they, you know, that they consistently report in a way that happens to be disrespectful. Mm. You know, I think that it's sort of like they just know that more people will look at it. But if so few of us don't say anything, then they get the message that oh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people clicked on this.
0: Or if you click it knowing knowing that it's shitty and disrespectful, yeah. but you hate yeah. click it. To have yeah. a read of it so you can get more angry. Well,
2: yeah. They don't give a shit yeah. how
0: you feel about yeah. it. you have got, yeah. the cl- got the click.
1: Yeah, they don't care because that's all they need. So if we give them the click, which sometimes we have to do it, right? Acknowledge that sometimes it's the only way that we can hear about that particular news item, mm-hmm. right? Particularly when some of those bigger ones that do these kinds of disrespectful headlines and disrespectful reporting or contribute to myths around like, well, why didn't she leave? Or, you know, the not all men kind of narrative, whatever it may be. When it comes to those sorts of um, narratives in me- that are perpetuated by media organizations, if we have to click on it to see it, we can then say something. You know, it doesn't stop. Like our, pers- our power is not just as media consumers, you know, and that's where social media is so powerful, yeah. right? Like we might not be influencers. We might not have a following, and that's okay, right? It's probably better because more people around us are going to trust what we say, yeah. right, because they know it's genuine it's coming from the heart. So we can actually talk about that, you know, like um, have those conversations um, even offline, you know, with our family and friends to actually start a conversation about, Hey, did you read that news article? How did you feel about it? Mm. You know? And if it's the number one, you know, like, you know how they always rate like the news articles in terms of most viewed, right. If it's like the number one or two most viewed chances are people in your family or friend group are going to have read it. Right. Yeah. Or they'll know the news item. So if you have those conversations, we slowly shift the tide towards the more, Kind of enlightened kind of way of consuming media as well
0: yeah because sometimes it just takes somebody challenging something that you never even thought about so if we're so used to reading um, you know perpetrators framed as though they just you know they're a good bloke who just snapped one day or yeah. all that kind of bullshit mm. you don't give it to, you don't give it a second thought often because it's what you're conditioned to read and it, it like you said most of us are good people. It yeah. just takes one friend, one person to kind of point out the BS for you to go, oh, actually,
2: yeah,
0: yeah that's, that's absolutely really right.
1: One. That's a really good point that you've raised around the the good man because that's the narrative that we see. Like when, when Rowan Baxter took the life of Hannah Clark and her three children, that was what we saw, yeah. that he was Disgusting. a good man. You know, and we've seen it countless times. We've seen, you know, We've seen the way that men who kill their partners and or their children are reported in the media as being, particularly if they're like white men who play sport. Yeah, you know, have a connection to sport. Local footy team is like
0: star player. What?
1: Yeah, or they're like, you know, great dad snaps, right? And it's like, well, isn't it interesting that these men don't snap against their boss, Mm. against any of their male friends, against any other women in their life even, mm. but this one person, their intimate partner and and that group, that nuclear circle, bears the brunt of, you know, their behaviour. Mm. You know, so it's not really that violent men snap and lose control. They just choose to exert control in a different way. Mm. You know, so that's one of the myths that we sort of look to unpack throughout the series as well around this idea of of men who men who murder their partners are fundamentally not good men, no. you know, because good men don't do that, you know. Um, and the media plays a, a, a big responsibility there, I think, in terms of the way that they report, the way that they will, um, you know, the, the taking of a woman's life is like a footnote and the rest of the article is about his footy, footy career yeah. or, like you said, like the local. humanises kind of him. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't need that, particularly in the media afterwards. We don't need to, you know, and we don't need to go into, like, the opposite territory as well where we're just, you know, calling him things either. We just need to report in a way that's actually responsible and ethical Mm -hmm. and actually speaks to the facts of what's going on while educating people about the reality of this as well.
0: Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I've only heard the first episode, um, but I will be listening to the whole series And, you know, it's tough listening, it's uncomfortable Mm. listening, but, you know, it is important because this is tough and uncomfortable. Like that's just the reality of it. So,
2: um,
0: I can't imagine how full on it's been for you to be, you know, once again, kind of a knee deep in this, but good on you, mate. I think it's an incredible endeavor and a labor of love. So good on you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ash. And I really hope people get something out of it. And like you said, it's difficult at times to listen to, but necessary. And I think that um, I think that's something that people can go gently with, you know, mm. like it's there, you don't need to listen to it all in one sitting. If it's mm. difficult, take a break, look after yourselves. But yeah. And have I'm
0: conversations, thinking- that's what I did. Yeah. I listened to one episode and I kind of debriefed with a female friend of mine. Yeah, and I think correct. perhaps that's the most powerful thing because, you know, we have these conversations and that's how we learn and grow and it becomes part of a wider conversation. So, So, yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Ash.
0: My interview with Taring and the first episode of his podcast, No Place Like Home, has given me a lot to think about and like I just said, it's given me lots to talk about. We so often avoid what's uncomfortable, right, or what we think would ever affect us. But as women, I believe we're not safe unless we're all safe. We're not free unless we're all free. Thank you, Taring, for sharing Nikki's story and creating a safe space for other victim survivors to do the same. If you have any feedback, thoughts, suggestions, or just want to have a chat, you can hit me up anytime, hello at ash.london. Audio production on the podcast is by
2: Dom Evans. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.